Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Jane's World of Intelligence. I'm your host, Harry Kemsley, as usual. And as usual, I have my co-host, Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hello, Harry. Good to see you, as always. So, um, in recent times, Sean, we've looked at a range of different topics, both to do with how open source can be used. We've had conversations with people who are practitioners, not least, of course, the chief at the Open Source Intelligence Center in the CIA. And one of the things that came out of that conversation, you might remember, Sean, is how commercial providers should or could be stepping into the international community, excuse me, the intelligence community, and how we might be able to help them focus on some of the flanks whilst they're dealing with high priority things. We could be doing things in the commercial uh, sector on some of those lower priority items, perhaps, as well as potentially finding good indicators and warnings from predictive intelligence that might help the intelligence community as well. So it's with that in mind that I recently had a brief from a couple of James analysts who I'm delighted to say are with me, more of those in just a second, on a situation in Haiti, which I wasn't aware of, which is exactly the kind of thing that I think Randy was talking about in terms of the power potential of open source. So with that in mind, I'm delighted to introduce the listener to two colleagues of mine at Jane's, Matthew Henman. Hello, Matt. Hi, Harry. Hi, Sean. Great to be here. Good to see you. And Lewis Galvin. Hello, Lewis. Hello, both. Good to see you. So I'll just give the audience a quick introduction to who you are. Matthew Henman is the head of the America's regional desk in Jane's country intelligence department and oversees cross-regional working groups on terrorism, insurgency, and serious and organized crime. Matthew has worked for Jane's for 15 years, and prior to his country intelligence role, was the head of the Jane's Terrorism and Insurgency Center. Matthew has a BA in War Studies from King's College London, and an MA in Intelligence and International Security from the same institution. Lewis Galvin, joined Jane's as a research analyst in April 2022, becoming part of the America's desk within the country intelligence team. He predominantly covers countries in South America and the Caribbean and is the lead for Haiti. Lewis previously worked for the civil service as an international engagement officer. Before that, he was a security operations consultant responsible for conducting bespoke risk assessments for clients operating in conflict zones. He holds an undergraduate degree in history and a master's degree in international relations. Welcome to you both. So with those introductions, it's clear that you both have a good background to help us understand how Haiti's come into view for you. Lewis, perhaps I could start with you. Could you give me, Sean, the listener, a quick overview of what's happening in Haiti? Why are we having this conversation today? Lewis. Yeah, so starting to gain some more uh, international is Haiti. So you might have seen little bits uh, cropping up in mainstream media uh, due to their significant uh, deterioration in the security environment. Now, it's important to frame this uh, contextually, where this has come from um, and how violence is being driven in the country. Um, so we have to go back to July 2021, which I think is the significant escalation point uh, in the situation when the former president, uh, Jovenel Moyes, was assassinated uh, by a group of Haitian Americans and Colombian mercenaries. Moyes' assassination then essentially opened up a power vacuum in the country um, in which there have been 
approximately 200 gangs nationally have proliferated in the most recent estimates. 200 indeed, yes, across the country, um, approximately 100 of which uh, are active in the capital uh, in Port-au-Prince. And again, important to frame this in the context, gangs have had quite a prominent position in Haitian society uh, for 20 to 30 years uh, after the military was disbanded in 1995. Gangs were essentially used as a political tool uh, by politicians to gain their own way, uh, essentially, in and around elections and to uh, yeah project a lot of influence and power from senior Haitian elites. As a consequence of this gang proliferation, and in the absence of an, an effective security force, uh, like I mentioned, there's no military in Haiti or it's very small scale, around 500 personnel after being remobilized in 2017. Uh, they essentially rely on the Haitian uh, National Police, which the UN estimates only has around 13,000 uh, staff, only 9,000 of which are doing policing duties or carrying out policing duties uh, for a population of, in the West Department, it's you know, several million. So as you can see, these, these gangs have had an opportunity or been exposed to an opportunity to, to really take control for themselves. Um, and as a result, we found some of the, the latest figures are uh, in the first quarter of 2023. There have been around 1600 violent incidents uh, recorded. That's from the Haitian National Police and the UN, uh, and that encompasses homicides, kidnappings, sexual assault, etc., uh, which is a significant increase even from the first quarter in 2022. Uh, where there was around just under 700 incidents. So you can see, yeah, the, the security situation is is deteriorating uh, and quite rapidly um, over the space of two years, things, things have escalated um, significantly. And this has largely been driven by two uh, major gang coalitions. So although we have these 100 gangs uh, in West Department, which is where the capital Port-au-Prince is located, uh, most of them are small, small-scale, low-level street gangs affiliated to the coalitions G9 and GPEP. Uh, and again, recent estimates are that G9 and GPEP uh, control around 80% of Port-au-Prince uh, at the moment. As a result, the United Nations, uh, as I mentioned, is starting to gain a lot of international attention. Uh, the United Nations have, on several occasions now, called for air intervention uh, from an international force. Uh, the UN does seem reluctant to make that a uh, blue helmeted force, and so they're looking for looking for partners, uh, countries to take the lead on that. Uh, at the moment, no country has stepped forward uh, and committed to leading that mission. It's still an ongoing dialogue. There's a lot of you know interested parties, but again, nobody has uh, yet stepped forward to to take take control of the situation. Essentially. So I would, um, Sean, I'd love to see the uh, intelligence estimate to map out 200 gangs um, roaming around and driving uh, the situation in Haiti. Um, in my experience of multifaceted environments like that, it's almost impossible, Sean, to get a really clear fix on what's happening on the ground, certainly from the sort of traditional intelligence processes that I've seen in the past. Sean, your thoughts on that? Yeah, hopefully we'll get onto this a little bit later, but you are talking about, you know, human terrain analysis here. You're talking about some really detailed tactical stuff, which is makes a really good point that someone has to be looking at this full time. You can't just go, all right, look over there now. 
uh, and then start from scratch. You just can't do it when you're looking at something that is, you know, is really you've got to get into the details. You've got to get, do the network analysis and, uh, and all the rest of it. Just just while I'm on, just to sort of address your sort of the macro element of your question, you know, why on earth would we'll be looking at Haiti in the first place? Well, you know, uh, th there's two reasons, really. And the, the first one is regional stability because it's lower priority. It doesn't mean to say it doesn't won't have my favorite word, contagion. You know, it was the first ever independent Caribbean state, um, former, former French colony. Um, and, and, you know, the potential for instability, if it goes into chaos, somebody's going to have to do something about it. There is an economic angle to it as well, actually. So it's a major exporter of bananas, cocoa, mangoes. It's got a lot of sugar refining in it. It's also the, the world's capital in producing a thing called vetiver oil, which actually is really important in the production of perfumes. So not that you would think that would be important, but it's actually, it is actually an economic uh, angle to that. So it is in the, it's in the, um, the global community's interest to keep a lid on it. The last thing you need is to be distracted by, you know, something like that in that region when there's so much else going on. There's a really interesting point you just made there, Sean, which I'm just going to just going to underscore for now before I come to you, Matt, for a slightly uh, broader view across some of the uh, topics that's just been introduced by Lewis. That is that you don't walk into an environment in a country like Haiti with 200 gangs and all the chaos that could be creating in terms of trying to understand the situation and overnight pick up an intelligence picture that's understandable. You just don't you just don't get to do that. Right. So I think that's a really important point going back to where we started in this uh, podcast about why you might work with a commercial partner that can have that long-term enduring look at something like James does and have a view that you could pick up to sort of prime the pump, get you started, a foundational understanding of what's happening on the ground. Matt, I know you wanted to come in there, so I'll, I'll stop and let you come in at that point. Sure, thanks, Harry. I think exactly as you say, you know, Lewis and I have been working hard over the past few months helping build this broader intelligence picture of the situation on the ground in Haiti. Um, as Lewis mentioned, you know, huge number of gangs and really trying to follow things on a, on a kind of micro level down to, you know, mapping out areas of control area of operations where gangs are competing for control of key critical national infrastructure, et cetera. And the risk that that then poses to, you know, there's already a substantial kind of international community contingent still on the ground in Haiti. Um, there is a major humanitarian angle to the situation there as well. I mean, already the the situation in Haiti was, you know, hasn't been good for the past several decades. But the last couple of years, as Lewis mentioned, has really been a steep decline in terms of the, you know, the humanitarian situation, particularly in and around the capital itself. Um, and amid that really kind of complex security situation with this proliferation of all these different gang actors... In the past couple of months, the security situation has you know, taken an additional turn. We had the, an emergence of a, uh, almost overnight really, of a citizen vigilante movement that started fighting back against the gangs. Um, you know, some really, you know, kind of hideous scenes of gang members being, you know, butchered in the streets by you know, gangs armed with, you know, petrol and machetes. Um, so yeah, an already volatile and highly unstable situation becoming much worse, you know, really underscoring the inability of the Haitian National Police to uh, project any kind of stability and security on the, you know, the capital city. Um, and, you know, the, the local population feeling compelled to take the security matters into their own hands, which, you know, I think has 
dampened dampened the gang situation temporarily, but it's only going to cause kind of pushback and additional insecurity down the line. Um, yeah. I mean, you can imagine, can't you? I, I do remember the, the riots in the UK some years ago when the streets felt like they were becoming unsafe. People started to organise their own street defences, their own street security to, to look after their homes and their families. You can imagine the average Haitian family worried about this, the security of their children, their livelihoods, their homes, um, wanting to do the same. Sean, I know you wanted to come in there, but just before you do, Sean, um, Lewis, what I'd be really keen to understand after Sean's uh, input is, it's okay, great, that's a interesting and somewhat worrying perspective you've given us about the path from 21 to the current day. What I'm curious to know after Sean's input is, how do we do that? How do you do that from open sources? But we'll come back to you in just a second, Lewis, with that question. Sean, over to you. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to reflect what Matt said about the humanitarian angle, which is really important. And certainly for you know countries like the UK and, and the US, of course, you know, having that baseline understanding before you do something like a non-combatant evacuation operation, which I've spoken about before, is really, really important. I remember when I was at our Joint Forces headquarters, which is our rapid deployable headquarters, you know, we, we had to go to Montserrat to uh, to evacuate people there. We didn't even know where it was on the map, let alone what the uh, security situation was like. I mean, fortunately, it was pretty benign, fairly benign. But this is exactly the sort of thing we would need to know for something like, you know, and Haiti is a great example. You know, are we going to be opposed getting in there? Where are the areas of high threat? Who are the entitled people? Um, you know, can we can we expect the uh, support from the infrastructure and the and the um, governance in the country? All that sort of stuff is incredibly important. Yeah, really, really complicated. So, Lewis, let me um, pivot pivot us back then to uh, one of the central themes that we've often talked about in these uh, podcast episodes, which is how do we do it? How do we use the open source environment? How have you gone through a process over the recent months that Matt mentioned earlier to generate this picture and understand that there are 200 gangs involved, for example? How have you done that? Yeah, so we have a couple of different strands um, that I use primarily for the, for the sourcing aspect, um, and they all contribute they all contribute differently to allow me to paint the bigger picture um, mm -hmm. as as the analyst sort of leading on this. So we have the the Jane's event database is a, a really useful starting point for us where our central events team collate events relating to gang activity uh, in Port-au-Prince. And, and that helps to give me sort of an indication of what's happening and where it's happening in so the country. Like, so, so just to be clear, that's like a foundational level of just knowing what's been going on, generally speaking, in this country in this case. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so they they locate the uh, the events, they source source the events, uh, and then we pick it up and proceed to do the analysis uh, with that. But the events database uh, works best when, uh, excuse me, operating alongside a lot of the local media outlets. So I find with open source intelligence in Haiti, your local media outlets are your best friend, um, and I think you can draw parallels with most countries. It's the more granular information comes through local outlets. Uh, international media isn't going to report on smaller scale incidents in Haiti. Right. But it's really important for me to be able to use uh, these local local media outlets because I get these smaller incidents and that helps me to paint the bigger picture of what's going on. So I can see a couple of small scale gang clashes on this street, in this commune and in this area. And ultimately that helps me assess the trends uh, and, and what's going on. But that also, again, is supplemented by a lot of uh, 
NGOs have an active interest in Haiti, in Haiti because of the human rights issues um, that we've sort of addressed, and then the food insecurity, etc. There's a lot of a lot of interest from uh, non-government organisations, and a lot of these organisations will do publications over periods, so be it quarters or monthly or however they choose to do it. Uh, that again help to paint the bigger picture, uh, particularly in terms of these statistics. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I get a lot of the statistics, the homicide data, etc., uh, and I'm able to compare uh, between different periods. Um, and again, it helps me to paint the bigger picture of okay, things are escalating or de-escalating, uh, and ultimately who the perpetrators are. And then lastly, um, the United Nations Integrated Office in Haiti as well, also course very active in Haiti um, and they produce a lot of information um, from their sort of on the ground local sources that again supplements the three strands that I just mentioned um, and yeah ultimately allows me to then do some trend analysis and, and assessment. So Matt thank you Lewis. Coming from that specific example case Matt around Haiti where Lewis has outlined a series of different sources triangulating as he goes building detailed pictures in certain areas that fill in the blanks from the high-level context it's got from elsewhere. That sounds like a fairly orthodox methodology. That's consistent, I take it, with other things that we do in the same in the same sort of genre, in the same sort of in- intelligence analysis. But is there anything about Haiti that stands out? So first question is, is that consistent with the other methodology? And then secondly, is there anything unusual about Haiti that you would want to underscore in terms of why open source has been particularly useful or particularly challenging for this, this particular case? It's a tricky one. I mean, as, as Lewis mentioned, I think a lot of the, a lot of the information that I is kind of going into these reports is open sources, it's local news sources. It's the kind of thing that someone with a, you know, a, a search engine could find. But I think what we're able to do is is to take a lot of those reports collectively, put it together, and then build up that broader intelligence picture. That's a lot harder to do if you know, if you're starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. So you know, Lewis will you know take in you know new reports every day and adds those to the intelligence picture that he's already put together. So you know, there'll be a report of you know two gangs fighting in this area or a new gang having taken control of a, a particular area of a neighborhood. And you know, we'll be able to compare that to the you know the intelligence material that we already have and we can track that as a as a change, as a development. So it's not just a it's taking it beyond that just pure information and building that into actual intelligence in terms of this is a change we have recorded in terms of this gang now operating in this new area or this gang is now controlling this area or this gang is using new operational methods etc all of which we're then able to kind of piece together into yeah monthly reports that we're putting together for clients to kind of underscore those key security developments Etc. And, and 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 trend changes in the country, but as you mentioned, it's a sorry, it's a, just to, just to carry on. It's just a, it, it is a standardised kind of intelligence collection process that we use across Jane's and particularly across the country intelligence department that Lewis and I both work in. Yeah, you know, we've have established you know very um, standardised intelligence kind of collection and preparation methodology in terms of how we approach this to ensure that you know there is that consistency of approach and methodology to all of the uh you know foundational and threat intelligence that we're producing and 
I guess the, the the big challenge with Haiti, though, going back to this 200 gangs, is just the complexity of what you're seeing. I mean, the, the intelligence picture that you've got being updated at the micro level by neighborhood and, and corners of particular streets where fights might be happening must, Lewis, become a, a very, very complicated picture very quickly. So keeping that picture clear enough to then transmit to somebody else must be a big part of the challenge that's particular to Haiti, I would have thought. Definitely, yeah. And I think it it highlights some of the difficulties that we can be faced with uh, when primarily using open source intelligence. Um, and as you say, Haiti is a good example. Um, so one one area of the capital we're currently monitoring uh, is, is generally considered the most violent commune uh, in the city. But there's very rarely information coming out about homicides and kidnappings, etc. in this area because nobody's willing to go there. The, the local media aren't willing to go there. NGOs, it's an absolute red zone. And ultimately, if there's no information coming out, it can be fairly difficult to assess the situation. But I think equally, in some cases, the lack of information is all the information you need. So I can sit here and confidently tell you this is one of, if not the most violent area of the capital, despite not having all of these all of these statistics, et cetera, um, coming out of the place. And it also, again, it helps with the sort of trend analysis. We see this area uh, called, it's called Cite Soleil, uh, this this neighbourhood in Haiti. When it is reported on, it's usually huge clashes. It's, it's the stuff that will make international media. It's 150 fatalities, 100 fatalities. It's wow. it's really large, large clashes. Um, and I think that just underscores where the media puts its attention you know this place it's so it's so common in Cite Soleil uh the, the the violent incidents that it's only now reported on when it's you know really significant relatively speaking um so yeah it, it does it does definitely highlight some of the difficulties that that you are faced well, with I will come to, thank you Lewis Sean I will come to you in just a second I know you you wanted to come in there Matt what did you want to say sorry just to say that that kind of complexity of, of the situation and the granularity, it, it highlights kind of another challenge that we then have to address, and that's how we're able to present this information, this intelligence to clients in a way that is actually understandable and actionable. Because it's all very well being able to say, you know, this is an incredibly granular situation it's very complex but if you can't convey that in a way that is understood right. by the people you're trying to you know provide this intelligence to then it's it's useless so yeah. it, you yeah. know yeah you know, if you you know present this information just as you know huge blocks of text you, you're going to get nowhere so we're, yeah we're very lucky in that we've been able to translate a lot of the intelligence picture that lewis has been kind of compiling into you know detailed maps showing areas of control where gangs are competing where you know not just gang violence but vigilante violence is being conducted mapping out kind of changing areas of control as well to try and visualize this information in a way that's a lot easier to actually then kind of take on board okay i can understand much in a much more intuitive way this is the security situation on the ground these are the key areas of critical national infrastructure here are kind of key um you know government buildings etc but also then here are the gangs that are operating around those here are the ones that are in control of these areas here are the gangs that are challenging for control of those areas these are the hot spots and this is how it's been changing then on a month by month basis right. so yeah it's a it, it's a challenge but i think one that you know lewis and i have taken on uh eagerly being able to try and represent kind of complex 
informational or intelligence situations in a way that is intuitive and easy to understand for clients. Yeah, Sean, I'll come to you in just a second. And as I do so, just to sort of forewarn you, I think where we should go next, though, is how do we start to use this information to drive future areas of concern? You know, how do we start to look for indicators that might warn us of impending concerns? But before I get to that, Sean, I know you wanted to come in there, but I certainly think you should pick up on that point about had you received the brief from these guys about Haiti in your previous life, what would it have needed to have covered to help you get the planning done? Yeah, so I think that Lewis and Matt have both referred to, uh, and, and it leads to your question as well, the need for good methodology. So a re robust, repeatable process that is auditable, but also you can demonstrate to your audience, whoever they are, look, you know, we know what we're talking about here because we followed a robust process. It's tradecraft, that word again. Um, but to do so, you need to understand what you're looking at. And, you know, Lewis was talking about some of the databases he uses. And because he's looking at it so, so in so much detail, he will know if there's any changes to that. And the example, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but in Afghanistan, you might say, why on earth are you referring to Afghanistan now? There was a, a NATO system called the Afghan Mission Network. And what it did at the tactical level, it recorded what we call SIGAC, significant activity, basically. It was like when there was a Taliban attack, except when there was a contact. Now, you know, at some stage, the, the definition of what a SIGAC was got changed. And so the inputs into the database changed dramatically. So for a period of about three months, it appeared that the, the Taliban was spiking in terms of what they were doing. And everyone was going, all right, there's a there's a the usual summer offensive, et cetera, et cetera. Now, those who knew, particularly out there, went, no, 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 it's just the methodology. Well, A, you don't change methodology halfway through because you can't compare light with light. But B, you need to understand the, the statistics and what is being you know uh, reported on in order to, to do the so what. And I think Lewis and Matt have both brought that out quite strongly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, then let's um, let's move to the next um, part of this conversation. As I as I forewarned a second ago, Lewis and Matt. So one of the things I said in my introduction is that the fact that the commercial sector can be looking at the, some of these flanks, some of these arguably lower priority areas, where the world's focusing so much on what's happening in Ukraine, for example, us looking at Haiti to bring people's attention to it uh, at the appropriate time. But the appropriate time is what I wanted just to focus in on indicators and warnings. Haiti is now becoming a territorial, potentially regional issue that the UN's involved in. So that may be one of those things that the commercial sector could actually start to offer as a service to its colleagues and partners in the intelligence and national security arena. You need to start bringing your eyes to Haiti. So let's talk about how we do that, um, particularly around how we judge stability and what indicators we might use in that realm to drive the conversation, to actually bring the attention of people to the area, in this case of, of Haiti. So how do we build an understanding of indicators and warnings? And then how do we do that in a systemized way? Maybe I can start with you, Lewis, in terms of how you think about stability. And then maybe I can move that question to you, Matt, in terms of how do we then construct that into a formal indicator that we can use for uh, discussions and briefings? So Lewis, maybe you can start us off in terms of what you use to get that sense of stability. And then Matt, to you in terms of how we structure that. Lewis. Yep. So as a little bit of insight into to how we reach the assessments um, that we do is a lot of it is based off sort of trend analysis. So I think Sean uh, touched on it uh, just before. 
the, the fact that I'm looking at this in so much detail on a on a daily basis means even the smaller details I pick up on uh, over the period of a couple of weeks, and I can see changes in things like gang activity, escalation and violence, um, areas of control. And again, as Matt touched on earlier, we we're, we're mapping that at the moment. Um, and each report is is very different based on you know changing activity, um, and that all comes from trend analysis. So a lot of it is comparing previous periods of activity uh, to current periods of activity and identifying the changes, and then also trying to assess why these changes are occurring. Mm -hmm. So being on the America's desk, um, a lot of the work that we do uh, is focused around serious and organized crime. And you find there are a lot of similarities in the end goal for serious and organized crime groups. In this case, in Haiti, in Haiti, it's the, the gangs. And that is be it territorial control, economic control, uh, etc. So it's trying to ascertain what motivates gangs beyond just, you know, being self-sufficient, uh, what is driving the proliferation. Um, so worth highlighting in the in the second half of last year, there was a big push by several gangs to occupy a lot of uh, critical national infrastructure in Haiti. Uh, the Supreme Court was occupied, the largest flour mill in the country uh, was occupied, and the largest uh, oil distribution terminal in the country. And that was one of the major sort of points, turning points, where gangs went from just expanding which streets they have control of uh, to trying to identify the, the end goal. Um, and, and clearly there's an economic element here as well as a territorial element. So a little bit, yeah, a little bit of it comes from the expertise and my knowledge of the region as a whole. And then just applying that to, to Haiti as it's as its own. Very good. Own. So we've got the local expertise, Matt. We've got some indicators, as Lewis just described, that the back end of last year may have been forewarning to things really starting to ramp up over the general context from 21, as was described much earlier in this conversation by Lewis. How do we start to structure and systemize that into a set of indicators that we can start to compare like with like across different countries in that territory, for example, to see where the, the real hotspots are? How do we do that? So one of the things that we've been working on over the past 12 months across country intelligence as a whole is the creation of what we call our country stability indicators. Okay. So what these are is kind of creating uh, an overall kind of risk score for a country that details you know, the threat of either disorderly government collapse, forceful transfer of power, or the fragmentation of state power. And the way we do that is we break down that risk into three strands. So social risk, political risk, and economic risk. And then within each of those risk categories, we have a series of sub-indicators that are analysed. So for instance, I, I was leading on the, the social risk indicator. So within that, the indicators that we're monitoring are uh, activity by non-state armed groups, activity by serious organized crime groups, protests and riots, etc. So a variety of indicators, each of which is then kind of broken down into a, a smaller set of uh, security kind of questions and conditions to be assessed for that country. So within the non-state armed group threat uh, indicator, for instance, you know, it's looking at the operational methodology of groups, you know, the level of violence, um, the tactics of groups, targets, what they're trying to achieve, etc. So all of which is kind of uh, considered from this kind of bottom-up approach. So we consider all of these security factors for 
the non-state arm group risk that gets assigned a score that then gets combined with all the other sub indicator scores within the social risk score to create an overall social risk for a country that gets combined with the the political score which covers you know internal security corruption etc it gets combined with the economic score which is uh, largely using external kind of data sets around measuring economic stability within a country those will then get combined together to create yeah an overall kind of score of zero to four for a country which measures yeah which is a measure of the the country's internal stability mm-hmm. uh, and it's a fantastic kind of mixture of both qualitative assessments using the uh, the subject matter expertise of analysts who you know are real experts on individual countries alongside you know a quantitative input providing that kind of data element whether using uh, our own proprietary events data or external kind of data sets to come up with this kind of overall uh yeah country stability score which as we, we said you know it's important it's a, it's a standardized and repeatable kind of process and methodology so that for each country then across the world we have this we have this kind of clear score which is then reevaluated you know every quarter so that we're able to really kind of track changes in a country's kind of internal stability or a country's stability score but not just how it's changing, but what elements of risk are driving that. So some right. countries might have a high country stability uh, or instability score, and that might be driven p- primarily by political considerations. In other countries, it's going to be the social score or the economic score that's driving it, or a combination. Unfortunately, for some countries, it's it's high on all counts. Some yeah, countries, it's, it's low on many counts. But we've created this kind of standardized um, and kind of very detailed methodology for addressing, yeah, measuring these indicators and calculating up you know, from you know a very granular level into an overall risk score for a country. Right. What I like about that, Sean, uh, and thank you for that description, Matt. Um, what I like about that, Sean, is that it's it's auditable, it's explainable. You know, if if I'm going to get an indicator that says this country appears to be heading south, it's you know there are indicators coming through now that suggest this is becoming more and more instable. What's good about that from the recipient point of view, and you've been a recipient many many times of this kind of information, is that if you were to say, well, okay, I, I hear what you're saying explain that show me walk me down to the point that explains where that's coming from it sounds to me sean like that's exactly what matt and lewis are able to do for us certainly from what i've heard yeah absolutely and and much as within the intelligence community itself there is a rigorous robust some might say too robust process where you show me you're working i think it's even more so or, or more important in the open source intelligence world because back to the trust word okay if i'm going to federate if you want to call it that or partnership with you on something i need to know that what you're going to give me is absolutely right but i also need to go to know that it's going to be on time as well so the two things and you can own back to what i've said all along you can only do that if you are following robust methodology and looking at it constantly yeah well, as I as I now start to uh, the clock is looming in my eye, and I start to uh, think about how much time we've got left. Let me um, ask yourself, Matt and Lewis, to think of a takeaway you'd like the audience to have from this conversation. Be that perhaps Lewis, in your case, about what next for Haiti, what should be worried about most in uh, that particular country and situation, and Matt, from your perspective, and maybe perhaps more broadly in terms of 
what do you want people to take away in terms of the power of open source intelligence and how that's driving this? Sean, I'm going to let you go first. Very unusual today in terms of your takeaway. Wow. And normally, by the way, for you, Matt and uh, Lewis, he gets to go last, which means we've all eaten his sandwiches before he gets to them uh, in the uh, takeaway. But Sean, what's your one takeaway from today that you want the uh, audience to remember? Great. Uh, and I think there's a very, very clear takeaway from this one. Particularly, I like this case study a lot because what it demonstrates is that there is definitely the need of a strong partnership. And this has come out from from Randy and from others, actually, some of our very senior XIC leaders, that there needs to be a really strong partnership between the intelligence community uh, and the open source providers to say, OK, what are you going to cover for us? Um, I don't think that conversation is particularly mature yet, but say, right, if you can cover those areas which are right now less important, it will let us focus on those things that really are, you know, um, imperative and immediate to us now. And then we can rely on you to actually, when we go, uh, what's happening there, something on the shelf that we know and can trust. So for me, very much is that is that 80 20. And also the fact that if they are confident and understand the methodology, they will go, look, we are very happy that 80 percent of what needs to be done or 90 percent even is in the open source domain. And let's face it, the IC will be using a lot of the databases that Lewis has, has talked about already. But then they can add the sprinkle of gold, you know, of uh, of magic dust that is the exquisite classified stuff over the top of it, which makes them more efficient in how they reuse their their rare resources so that's the big one for me thanks sean lewis what we should what, what should we worried about with regard to haiti in the in the foreseeable future well i think with what we should be worried about it's it's very easy to forget about the human element with things like this um from a you know the the security element we're looking at what's driving the violence but sometimes it can be it, to be difficult to remain connected to to the actual impact of that and yeah the the human element so i just think the what's next for haiti is you know hopefully an improving humanitarian situation first mm -hmm. and foremost um that comes with a lot of different elements uh looking at holding elections perhaps uh international intervention etc mm -hmm. but i think yeah ultimately we don't want people to forget the impact it's having on on the haitian people Real people, yeah. And stand by, Lewis, for I suspect a call to you to provide them with the map of the 200 gangs and where they are in which neighbourhood and what they're doing. Matt, your, your takeaway for the audience. Uh, Haiti's been a great example of uh, where we've been able to kind of directly support kind of client requests coming in you know, from within the Five Eyes community for, yeah, that, that open source complement to their existing you know kind of more classified intel strands helping to yeah provide those intelligence assessments relating to kind of key, key security trends and developments in the company in in the country sorry i should say um really underlining yeah as kind of you know both you harry and sean have, have have highlighted the role that we can play in in supporting information and security operations at the planning and kind of execution stage of kind of key national security clients. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I'm going to un underscore that by using that foundational word again. I think I described it earlier as sort of prime the pump. If I was working with you again, Sean, and we were asked to go into Haiti as the planners around a multinational force to create an environment where the human condition was uh, improved, it would take us an awful lot of time, a huge amount of guesswork, probably a bunch of assumptions, and we would walk in very, very concerned that we didn't really understand the picture. If I could take a map 
of the area with the current and recent situation already plotted out for me so we knew at least where the hotspots were that would be a start so for me it's about that foundational understanding layered in with some current intelligence that we can provide from open sources in that complement that you described matt uh, or as the partnership as uh, as randy nixon previously described it between the commercial and the private sector so yeah i agree haiti is an interesting example and hopefully the uh, the lessons that we've learned from previous examples where early intervention will generate better outcomes for the human condition uh, will be remembered by the international community. Okay, well, at that point, I'll pull stumps, uh, but not before, of course, I sincerely thank you, Matt, and you, Lewis, for both the work you're doing, but also for the time you spent with us today on the podcast. Thank you both very much. Not at all. It's been great speaking with you both. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Lewis. It won't be the last time, I promise you. Sean, as always, good to see you. And for the listener, I look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. 